Good morning, I'm Emily Madison, and today we will be reading from Colossians 3, 12 through 21, which can be found on page 984 in the Pew Bible. Colossians 3, 12 through 21. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. We don't always have husband and wife teams, but thank you for, uh, for that. I was laughing when we uh, name Amnesty Sunday. It's like the hardest thing on our staff to get your attention after passing out the peace. Uh, so I'm thankful for Adam's attempt at that. Um, but hey, it's worth it just to meet each other, and I'm glad you're, uh, glad you're here this morning. Let me pray for us, and um, we'll ask for God to speak to us as we jump into the topic of relationships this morning. So God, we ask for your help as we get started. Um, we've been singing about who you are. We've um, declared some truths that uh, they're both nourishing, and they might also be hard to say. There may be places where we have questions about your provision and your goodness, and to be asked to declare the truth of who you are is both faith-stirring and it's also challenging. So for my friends in the room who find themselves this morning struggling to see your goodness or wondering uh, or even just asking if you even exist, would you be close and would you help? I pray the thought that you are a relational God, that you came close to us through your son Jesus, that you lived the life that we should have lived and died a death in our place to make a way for us to be in relationship with you. I pray that would be the gravitational center of how we answer the questions of your goodness, how we answer the questions of your provision, and even how we answer the questions of your very existence. So I'm asking that you would stir faith in the room, that you would comfort people, that you would challenge people. Um, And then would you grow us as a people Uh, All of us have this desire for relationships, and often we have more jagged edges or fragments than we have great examples or um, a great track record. So there's regrets in this conversation. There's longings in this conversation. Would you help us as we engage your word? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been sitting in this text from Colossians chapter 3 for a couple of weeks now. It really is kind of home base for us as a church. It's a summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to apprentice after Jesus. And we started where the text starts, which is where the whole Bible starts, which is with God himself. If you look with me in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The text begins like followers of Jesus just reflecting on, thinking about what it means to be in Him, to have an identity rooted in Jesus. So we talk first about being hidden with Christ, which is what it says in verse 3. And then from there we went on to say, well, if, if that's our identity, if that's where we're grounded, then, then there's an invitation in the text to be honest about other places that we look for identity. So we talked about the gospel really making us a, a, a honest people. And to say that means the message of Jesus and what he has done to save us and ransom us and rescue us, when we receive that, when that becomes our primary identity, we are honest. And the opposite is also true. If that's not your primary identity, if you're trying to build your own identity, if you're aiming at kind of establishing yourself, then often there's a temptation to exaggerate or to diminish, to, to hide in something else if you don't hide in God. So there's an invitation I'm really focused on chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, this naming of these other places we might go for identity, and we just and saw it as an invitation to honesty. And then, and then we saw in that text an invitation to forgiveness. Honesty kind of brings us to a place to be honest about where we've hurt other people, where we need to be forgiven. And so to trust in Jesus, to be centered in the gospel, is to be a forgiving people. And then it moved us into being a thankful people last week. And then as we step towards those things, kind of weaving these different themes, we come to being a relational people this week. And then next week we'll look at being an outward-facing people. But all of that is kind of rooted underneath these ideas of who is it that we are, and then what's it like to live like us? Identity is formed when we answer the question, like, who are we? And then how do we live like us? What are the ways that our family or our group or our tribe, how do we actually live? And this text is giving us lots to engage with. And we just pulled a few of those themes, asking God to weave a couple of those into, into our life. And so when we think about relationships this morning, um, it is like how you live your life. It's the backdrop to everything. Your biggest successes, your happiest moments, your saddest, difficult moments. It's the stuff that's remembered about you at your funeral. It's the stuff that's the substance of your counseling sessions. I mean, it is the place that you actually experience the majority of your life is in relationships. Both, both receiving and giving, both blessing and cursing, both trying to heal from and trying to engage with in a healthy way. Relationships really is the centerpiece of how we experience the world. And it makes sense because God is a relational God. It's not just a modern thing for us, not just a, an American thing. It's not a post-COVID thing to talk about relationships. We talk about it because it's really who God is and how he's made us. So, so there's a lot we could say. What I want to do this morning is kind of orient us around two ideas. One is that God is a relational God. I want to just talk about God for a moment. And then I want you to imagine your life as a garden the text will talk about taking off and putting on, and the parallel passage in Galatians talks about fruits of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. So, so we're going to use a garden metaphor to help us understand, like, how do we cultivate healthy relationships? So, so what does it mean that God is a relational God, and what does it mean for us to have kind of a healthy relational garden? I don't think it'll be too much of a stretch for you to see those things as we engage in those. So, so we'll just start with God as a relational God. Here's really important for you to kind of start with. We don't make relationships the ultimate goal. To have healthy relationships is a beautiful thing. It's a, a blessing. It's something that you should desire. But, but to make having healthy relationships the thing that if you acquired it, if you attained it, if you maintained it, then you would be okay will actually crush you. 
Relationships come from God, but they, they can't be a God for you. And to ask them to do that would send you on this perpetual bouncing between isolation on one side to protect yourself from unhealthy relationships and maybe you would say a measurement on the other side to, to demand and cling to and hold on to and pour yourself into relationships. If you're asking relationships to, to save you, to make you whole, to be enough for you, to, to satisfy the longings of your heart, then, then you put them in this God-like place that, that actually sets you up to what the Scriptures call idolatry. And to do that would actually not lead to flourishing of relationships. It would actually crush you. It would be overwhelming. You, you couldn't maintain them in a healthy way because you would begin to use them and demand them or, or even then protect yourself from them. So saying that up front then orients us a little bit to say, well, how do we get to a place that we even care about relationships? If they're not God, then why, why do they even matter to us? Why not live in these isolated spaces like little hermits all over the globe? And the answer is that you're made in the image of a relational God. So to talk about relationships and to talk about God first is to first talk about who he is. The scriptures teach us that, that God is, in his essence, a relational being. Now, the Orthodox faith teaches us that, that he exists forever as a relational God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet united in one essence. So you have this relationship and this unity in the very nature of who God is himself. So when the creation story opens up and we get the origins of how we got here, and it says that we're made in his image, that means you are made for relationships primarily because God himself is a relational God. It's, it's his essence, it's his being, it's who he is. And it's what he does. It's how he relates to the world. It's how he pours himself out. So again, the incarnation of Jesus shows us God coming towards us to restore relationships, to live in relationships. When, when God reveals himself in the Old Testament, he says things like, I will be your God and you will be my people. These are relational categories. He uses things even like Hesed love, which is a, a relational love, a, a covenant love, a binding love, a faithful love to attach himself to us as his people. God exists as relational and he does relationships. Even the Garden of Eden, we see God creating us and the portrait there is that he's walking with man and woman. And then as sin enters the world and that whole thing breaks, what we see is a promise that he's going to restore. And you go to the very end of the Bible and you see another garden and it's a wedding where God unites himself to his people again. So you see the beginning and end of the whole thing is about relationships. I just want to name that as we think about hope for our relationships in a jagged world where there's so much inconsistency and even like immaturity and most of us are living out generational patterns that are so broken and jagged to stop and just imagine because God is relational we have hope and what the text is inviting us to is actually to mirror after God we looked last week even on this idea of kind of who God is from verse 12 when he says that that we are chosen we are holy we are beloved those are actually things that are true of him and when we see that he's compassionate and kind and humble and meek we see pluses like Exodus 34, where God describes himself that way. So, so he's calling us into relational dynamics that, that he first fulfills. So it's not something that we pursue to make ourselves whole and right. It's something that we pursue as an outflow of our identity in Jesus. And even in the text, then, as it talks about what it means to be transformed by him in this beginning of the passage, did you notice the, the first place he goes to make application is to personal relationships? After he's talked about identity in Jesus and turning away from false identities and 
Learning to walk by the faith. Uh, walk by faith, he says in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands, love your wives, and don't be harsh to them. And children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, don't provoke your children lest they be discouraged. He goes to the intimate spaces of our life to make the first application of our faith, which is really, really significant. And it's not just to give us techniques or more commands. It's to show us this whole idea of what it means to be whole and to be in Christ is to spill out over into our relationships. So, so we start talking about relationships with this reference point of God as a relational God. And even as you think through the places throughout this text where it talks about being in Christ, when you come down to these relationships of, of marriage and the home, you see Jesus as the reference point there. Did you notice that in verse 18? Wives submit to husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And children obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. This relational God is the reference point for how we actually engage with one another. And, and as it gets instructions to husbands and to fathers, later on even to, to masters, we understand that God exists as our father. He exists as our husband. He exists as our master. These are all relational categories. So, so it, starts, it starts there. Okay, if that's kind of the orientation point, then, then the text gives us some help to think through how do we cultivate a life of healthy relationships in a world that really has lost its mind where we've been told to consume and to compare and to compete? It's like all, all we know. We're born into a relational world where we find hostility and manipulation. So we're asking, then, how, how do we have healthy relationships? What does it mean for us to actually embody what Christ has called us to? And so the text lays out for us kind of two reflexes or two, two things that we do. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 11 would call us to repentance. And then chapter 3, verses 12 to 17 would call us to a life of faith. So repentance and faith, these twin realities are kind of the backdrop of healthy relationships. Learning to walk with God and trust Him as we engage with one another and then learning to turn away from things that actually harm us and those Around us, And again, when you take this parallel passage in Galatians 5, he uses an organic illustration, which is where I'm getting this garden imagery from. He talks about fruits of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. What's named here is almost like a clothing metaphor we should take off and put on. He says you should be planting seeds. The truth is we're always germinating something. You're either sowing to the flesh or you're sowing to the Spirit is the way the Bible talks. Every action and reaction has one of these two outcomes. If you can just imagine your life as a garden, what imagine is that every action and reaction, every moment, you're, you're planting some kind of seed. Something to either appease or please or soothe the flesh. And there's a lot of examples in verses 5 to 11 in Colossians chapter 3. Or, or there are things of the Spirit. So I have that in my back of my mind from Galatians 5 because the, the parallel is just so striking. I also read a book recently called The Other Half of the Church. It's actually on the bookshelf in the back hallway. He talks about why the church is kind of stuck or stagnant and why it seems like people don't grow, at least for not for very long. And they, they have these moments where maybe there's a conversion and kind of an explosive growth. But if you just look over the, the long haul of people's lives, oftentimes we don't see the transformation that we might expect. We don't see growth. And so in the book, he's wrestling with like what's going on. And he uses a soil metaphor. He talks about there's things that we just need to be able to grow. He talks about the Hesed love of God. He talks about relational joy. 
He talks about engaging in like a group identity that's rooted in Jesus. And he talks about healthy correction as kind of four soils, which I found super helpful. You don't have to write those down. They're kind of all over this text. But he gives an illustration at the beginning of the book about him growing some tomato plants. It was a birthday present or something from his wife. Gave him some seeds, thought it would be fun. So he planted some. And the first year it was this like amazing bumper crop. He was super excited. There were more tomatoes than they could actually eat. So next year he gets excited about it. They kind of cultivate this again. There's less tomatoes, but it's still quite a few tomatoes. And then by the second and third and fourth year, he finds himself with these huge tomato plants, but very little actual tomatoes. So he consults a expert gardener or an expert tomatoist or whatever it is. He goes, he goes to somebody who understands and the guy says, hey, what have you done to the soil over the last couple of years? And he's like, nothing. I'm just like planting, I'm planting tomatoes. Like, oh, you haven't rotated crops or you haven't put anything, any nutrients into it? Oh, not at all. He said, oh, your, your problem is you have a nutrient depleted soil. And because of that, they're, they're still growing, but they're not producing the kind of fruit that you want. So I had that in my mind as I kind of came to this series wondering like what kind of soil God would have us cultivate. Like what would it mean for us as a people to think about nurturing and nourishing the soil of our church? Imagining again every interaction and reaction, you're always planting some kind of seed. You're, you're putting in something of the flesh or of the spirit. So in that sense, then if you can imagine our church is like a garden or, or that your life is like a garden, then these texts become ways for us to engage. Like, what am I actually bringing? What am I planting? What, what are the actions and reactions that happen? So, so in this idea of, of repentance and faith, what you see is here's the way we're supposed to live in chapter 3, verses 12 to 8, uh, 17, and then here's the way we shouldn't live, which is interesting even to talk about shoulding a little bit. I was in a group on Wednesday night. We were doing some teaching, and I just kind of was being a little cheeky and just said, man, I struggle with should all the time. And even like was crass and said, I should on myself all, all the time. There's places where I'm driven by what I should be doing. So you might even hear me talking that. You're like, oh man, here we go. Classic church down this road of shame. But what the Bible teaches us is there's actually a redemptive kind of shame. Uh, toxic shame would say you are bad. You don't belong. You don't measure up. Redemptive shame says, oh, friend, this way of living isn't what God's called us to. Come, come this direction. What you're stuck in is something you don't have to be trapped by. God's provided a better way. There's places even when the Apostle Paul is giving instruction to the church, he says, hey, you guys are indulging in sexual practices that even make, make unbelievers cringe. The pagan world is cringing over your freedom of your sexual practices. And then he says, I'm saying that to your shame. And not to should all over you, but so that you would stop and go, oh, I'm not supposed to live like this. So if you can imagine that thing, can we just look at verses 5 to 11 for a second? Imagine this garden. This is a relational garden. And what the text is saying to us is, here's some things that you should be de-weeding. You should pull this out of your garden. They, they have a negative impact on the way things grow. There's stuff in the soil that if you leave it there, it will not only deplete, but it will actually rob from the other spaces where you actually want to see things begin to grow. So, so just real practically, he names in verses 5 to 11, in this idea of redemptive shame, he names things of the flesh that we're supposed to take off. So, so there is no transformation apart from personal responsibility of you examining your life and going wait a second is this in keeping with 
what it means to be in Christ, right? So he says, this is your identity in Jesus, so take off the things, put to death the things that are not in keeping with that. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, and then he lists for you the things of the earth. And we've looked at the text several times. We've been sitting in it in our confession and pardon time. What, what Matt and the rest of the worship leaders are leading us through week after week is summaries of this text, just trying to get the categories into our hearts so that we would see, oh wait, I could and should take these things off. The things that come to sensuality and also things of anger. That, that list is provided there for us in a redemptive way to say, these are not in keeping with what it means to be my people. I would encourage you to stay in that text not as a means of shame, but as a means of liberation. Every time God corrects us or challenges us, it's always an invitation. Every warning has in it an invitation. Even the idea here that the wrath of God is coming because of these things, he's not rubbing your face in that. He's saying, oh, would you see the severity of this? Because we'll tolerate whatever we're doing as long as it's not too painful. So the Bible often fast forwards to our life and says, if you stay in this space, it's going to hurt you. And, and he just names relational categories. Notice their relational categories. Sexual immorality, passion, covetousness, evil desire, idolatry. It comes down into, uh, later in the text in verse 9, to, to, to lie to one another. Verse 8 talks about anger and wrath and malice and slander. These are relational categories. He says, hey, take these things off. And in this idea of correction, he says, like, don't lie anymore. And, and he roots it back in Jesus, right? Seeing that you have been saved and rescued, don't lie anymore to one another. Put off these things because you actually are being renewed in the image of your creator. So, so he calls out things like lying. When he comes down into these categories of husbands and wives and children and parents, he's going to say to husbands and fathers who had the cultural power in the day, hey, don't be harsh. Let me, let me say, not to your shame in a toxic way, but in a way to invite you. When you are harsh, you're not in keeping with the Spirit of God. When you are provoking your children, you're not in keeping with the Spirit of God. So he, he names in those spaces things that he desires for us to step away from. And then it's really fascinating when you come down into verse 11, the way he talks about unity. Look with me in verse 11 in chapter 3. He says, here there is not. So he's saying, Hey, this is not what we do. We don't, we don't live this way. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, after he's named things of the flesh and he's been specific about things to take off, he just says, hey, when it comes to the community, we don't think about one another the way the world does. We, we've dropped the categories of our background, our ethnicity, our culture, where we come from religiously, our experiences, our families. These are categories that would be used as markers in the ancient world. As the Greek kind of empire spread, you had Greeks and non-Greeks. Jews had an incredible pride in their heritage. Even when it comes to circumcision, like Jews would have prized themselves in their circumcision, this marker of the covenant faithfulness of God, and they would have been mocked for it in the world. These are all dividing lines in the culture. Barbarians are those who are unsophisticated, un untrained, uneducated. They don't speak Greek. And Scythians are the ones who are on the farthest edge of the known empire. Slaves and free, he says, these cultural markers that normally divide us. And here's what he says. In the family of God, relationally, we no longer mark each other by those things. 
But instead, Christ is all and is in all. It's exactly what he said at the beginning in chapter 3, that we're, we're in Christ, so we're hidden with him. If this is your identity, then set your mind on things above, not on things below. The way things function in our world is precisely to rank and compare and compete based on where you're from, who your parents are, what school you went to, how much money you make, where you live, what the color of your skin is, when you came into contact with religious things, how much you know, how much you don't know. All of those things are ways that we're constantly scanning relationships to see, do I belong? Am I better than you? Am I inferior to you? How do I get close to you? How do I protect myself from you? This whole list here is ways of ranking and comparing. And he just says, hey, we don't do that in the family of God. It's a kind of redemptive correction. It's a, it's a healthy correction to stay, hey, church, stop. Stop comparing. Stop competing. Stop consuming. Stop looking around the room and asking whether or not you're superior or inferior. Because here, Christ is all. It's the sum total of how we see one another. It's the place where we, we understand our primary identity. All of us were dead in our sins. All of us were rebellion. All of us were, were distant from God, and He loved us and rescued us and saved us. Christ is all. It is the thing that matters most. Not your relationships, not your background. Jesus matters most. And it says, fascinatingly, He is in all. This is not universalism or animism. This is saying... Everyone that you encounter is made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis in his book, Weight of Glory, talks about the idea that you've never met a mere mortal. You experience people that are eternal beings that if you were to meet them one day in the future, you might be tempted to worship them because of how they will be. And you just see them on the side of the road. You see them in a cubicle. You lay in bed next to them. You, you feed them at the dinner table. You, you're trying to meet them online. You're, you're working next to them. You're in classes. You're in small groups. You're sitting in pews with them. You experience them just as flesh and blood, but the scriptures say these are eternal beings. Christ is all and he's in all. So the dignity people have comes from the Imago Dei, from being made in the image of God. This is a game changer. Because why would you slander an image bearer? Why would you show malice to an image bearer? Why would you sexually assault with your mind an image bearer? Why would you take from an image bearer? Why, why would you covet what they have? Why would you pour out anger? Why would you use words that would actually harm and defend them? Why would you do that to an image bearer? Oh, you forget their image bearers. You'd think they just exist for your pleasure and your joy. You'd think they exist because of what they can provide for you. Adrian and I went to the underground performance at the Kaufman. It's a ballet kind of showing through the Civil War and what it was like to kind of engage the Underground Railroad to free slaves. There's so many moments of it, you just like feel inside your body, like the pain. And just remember in that space how normal it was in our country to see people based on the color of their skin and to rank and consume them. And there's scenes where people are, are being beaten or being chased or being hunted. You just ask, how could we ever do that? Oh, you do that when you forget that these are image bearers. You do that when you forget that Christ is all and is in all. And when you use other markers for your identity, it crushes your relationships. Okay, pretty intense. 
Think about the garden. Think about the weeds that are growing. Think about the things that must be uprooted for there to be health. Repentance on one side is this reflex of the follower of Jesus to set their mind on things above. What he's doing is saying, hey, remember what's true about who God is and what that means for you and live in light of that is exactly what he's saying in that section. And stop engaging in the way the world tells you to think about relationships. Friends, it will take decades for us to heal from the things we've consumed and absorbed in our culture. The Bible does not traffic in like idealism. Even this list here, it's written to Christians. So so he's not saying, hey, by next year you're going to be over this. If you read a couple of Bible verses, you're going to be just fine. It is a constant war in your soul to not go back to the places where you've been trained in the flesh to find identity. But one of the ways you fight that fight is to stop and repent, to take off the things of the flesh, and to realize as I'm interacting and reacting, I'm always planting seeds. Oh, Father, would you help us as a community plant seeds that are redemptive, not not of the flesh, not seeds that would actually harm or distort or destroy, but seeds that would actually bring about life. And and I would invite you just to engage this list. We'll, We'll read it one more time next Sunday, and maybe it's kind of gone over your head every time, but what we're trying to do is say, hey, these are the things below. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Let those things actually shape you. Okay, the text starts there, so just start there in the order of thought. Maybe it's because those are harder, or maybe they're more entrenched. Like, there are weeds at our house that um, are really hard to get out. We have this one, I don't even know where it comes from or what it's called. It's actually kind of beautiful. It's really tall, it's green, there's purple flowers on it. From the road, it looks like we might have planted it. You get close to it, though, and there are thorns, like, all over it. And not like rose thorns, like shred your hand kind of thorns. And to try to pull it out... It's like deep, you always snap it off. And so in two days later, it's like right back. The weeds seem to be harder to cultivate in a fallen and broken world, or they seem harder to remove in a fallen and broken world than than simply adding things of the flesh. However, our experience at home, and maybe yours, if you are a tomatoist, is the more you cultivate health, the less likely weeds are to grow. Like, Like it's the expulsive power of a new affection, the the Puritans called it, when you, when you cultivate something beautiful, it doesn't leave room for weeds. I have several bare spots in my yard. I plant seeds. They always die. I have no idea what's going on. Actually, this sermon's telling me there's probably something in the soil. There's some nutrient that's missing. I should throw some fertilizer or some nitrogen or something in the middle of that thing. But what happens is I plant seeds. They don't grow, but something grows. Stuff I didn't plant always grows. The gravitational pull of your heart is away from the things of the Spirit towards the things of the flesh. And so we should be aware. And this constant reflex to repent, to be honest, to be open is huge. Okay, and then he says in this garden metaphor, don't just stop doing stuff because that's like not a very fun way to live your life. Trust Jesus and quit messing up. Like, man, what a horrible malformed gospel. So what he says is trust Jesus, repent of other things you've been trusting in, and now live into these other relational realities that God makes possible. So remember in verse 12, go with your in that text there. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's the identity marker. That's who you are. You already have that. You're not earning that through planting redemptive relational seeds. You already have that. Therefore, let this be produced in your life. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. One is a complaint against one another. Forgive one another. Are you seeing all the one another's here? Bear with one another. 
forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which is a relational category, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. This is a relational situation that he's put us in, interdependent, connected in one body. You can read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 for, for some descriptions of both how challenging that is and how beautiful it can be as God gives us images of this relational body that he's the head of and we are a part of. And he says, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. There it is again, one another. This faith is not isolated. It's not independent. It's not solo. It's meant to be lived out in these relationships. So we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. We sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And whatever you do, covering all of it in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he makes application to where you live your life. You don't have to be married or have kids to engage this text. It's the personal places, the places where you're most seen and most known. God's intention is that the redemption of what he's doing inside of you is spilling out to those around you. So this smashes the idea of a a public life and a private life. Where you're one way out in the world and you're a different way at home. The Bible would know nothing of that duality. And actually, because of who Jesus is and the mechanism of repentance, you're free to live authentically in the spaces where you're most seen. Because oftentimes when you're most seen, that's when you're most afraid or most scared or feel most volatile or vulnerable and where you're tempted to grasp and to demand and to manage people. It's the way I make sense of this idea of husbands being harsh and dads being overbearing and provoking. Why? Because this is a hard place. They expose our neediness. Our wives and our children expose places where where men are are inconsistent, where, where they're Uh, not actually loving very well, where they they ask of things they don't actually embody themselves, and that space makes you nervous. So the easiest thing to do when you get nervous is not to humanize somebody, but to dehumanize them and to leverage things that actually would harm them. So so he says in this space, there's this one another command that's pervasive in the text, and then the context of relationships is where he calls us to live. And the, the goal of this is to be in one body. I might just say it this way. Mercy and grace are the cartilage in the joints of the body. What we need most from one another is people embodying and living out the love of God relationally with us so that when we fail, that's met with grace. That when we struggle, that's met with tenderness. These passages would actually set us up to be patient with one another's weaknesses, to delight in other people, to to see their stories as significant, to to be patient with them. The text calls us into something that's beautiful that you can only embody if you have a grounded identity in Christ. As we've kind of begun these series, I've I've tried to like cast some vision from the text, and we've also tried to tell some stories. So a couple of weeks I've had people up on stools here, and you kind of heard them talk. This morning we have someone on video, and if all goes well, you can actually watch the video. Uh, it's people that when I thought about being relational, I thought of these two. They're long-term members of our church. They've been here 25 plus years. Uh, and I think in a beautiful way, they embody this. I want you to hear a little bit of their story as we try to make application and then close with a reflection on Jesus with communion. But would you watch this, hopefully, as you see and introduce yourselves or be introduced to, uh, to Rob and Caroline Sykes. 
Hey, I want to introduce oh. you to Caroline and Rob Sykes. They've been members of our church for about 25 years now yeah. or so, so for quite a while. Uh, when I thought about people who embodied this value of being relational, they were the first people that came to my mind. Uh, I've only been here for three years, and I experienced a welcome from them. I've heard stories of them caring for people. Uh, Rob is one of our deacons. Uh, Caroline was on our elder advisory team. They've served in a ton of ways. Uh, every time we're something at the building, normally you'll find them there, even behind the scenes, which is kind of your preference. So thanks for being willing to do this. I know this is not your first choice to talk about yourselves. So thanks for actually serving us in this space. But uh, I wanted just to give you a chance to share a little bit of your journey and some of how you think about the church being a relational place, even as we're thinking about making application to what's in this passage from Colossians chapter three. So, so let me just start this way. I experience you guys incredibly relational. People matter to you. You see people. Um, I, I wonder where that comes from, how you learn that, how you think about that. Our parents and grandparents were very much involved in the small local Baptist church, and uh, they were always outreaching to people, new people, uh, longtime friends. They were very relational and I have an idea that that uh, rubbed off on yeah. on us, as well as when we joined uh, Leewood at the time, there were a lot of uh, people at the Leewood Baptist that exhibited that characteristic of uh, being very relational, uh, very concerned about what was going on in your life, and in return, we got to know them. That's good. So you kind of picked it up naturally, just watching people, receiving it, and then observing it. Would you add to that anything there? Um, and I think we also have Jesus as the primary example. I mean, he, you know, demonstrated that um, for from the beginning of the, his time on earth. And then the other thing I think is just experiences that we've had. Um, like, I know what has really made me feel welcome. And I think we tried to maybe replicate that for others. That's good. So. People just seem to really, like, matter to you. Like, uh, you work hard on names. Um, I watch you kind of engaging, and I know, Rob, you're kind of legendary fruit snack guy, but there is a, a sense in which you you really appreciate people. I, I remember the first time I came to dinner at your house, uh, you had, at the end of the time, we had had dessert, and then you said, oh, before you leave, and you went and grabbed your Bible, there was a piece of paper kind of stuffed in there that had all these names scribbled all over it, and you started to ask me, okay, so this person, so she she has blonde hair, I think he might be a, a an accountant, and they have two kids, what's their last name and you were working hard at it like what I experienced there was not just natural gifting when it comes to relationships but you were praying for people you were working on names you just really saw them and it, and it mattered I, I wanted to say in this space thanks for welcoming so many of us that you guys have created along with so many people that were here before you a place that people can actually be invited into so so thank you for that I think it's really fun Okay, if we talk about some about like how you think about it, I wonder if you have stories or experiences or memories of how you've received from the church. I would say um, kind of through those seasons of life, like the big milestones, there's been a lot of little ones, but some of the bigger ones I remember, you know, um, like some of our Sunday school class members bringing meals to our house after our first child was born. And the second one, when Rob had a major surgery, you know, there was support there that we saw when we've lost family members. There's been an outpouring. And sometimes I think the thing that I've noticed um, is it doesn't have to be big. It can be simple text messages. It can be a card. It can be a phone call. But um, definitely I, the relationships have made it a lot easier to make it through some of those rocky times as well as celebrate with you with the kind of more joyous times. Yeah. 
So I hear both small, regular, mundane mm-hmm. things, and then relationships you've already built, like they're ready now when you need them. Mm-hmm. I think that's really beautiful. Rob, anything you want to add to that? A handshake and a hug uh, can mean a whole lot. That's right. Can you just talk for a second about maybe what's been challenging for you as you think about valuing the relationships at a church? Well, sometimes uh, it seems like a real, real sacrifice to take uh, some of your time and give it to someone else in a relationship, a visit. Uh, but whenever you come away from that, I think it's you feel more blessed than uh, maybe the time that you sacrificed. You feel a lot more blessed. Yeah. She's saying there is a cost, but there's like a benefit it's, to it as well. It's probably very, it's just as beneficial or more for you as it is to the person you're trying to serve. That's good. When I think about too, like coming here early, you said you were pregnant with your daughter when you came 25 years ago. Officially joined. Yeah. Talk about like when your kids were little, maybe we have lots of young families and um, the challenge of like balancing work and home and church and other relationships. We didn't try to, you know, I think overcommit. I think we tried to make church or our relationship with God and serving a priority. But, you know, we had to flex sometimes and um, try to make it work and do the best we could. I think sometimes we took the kids along or the kids saw what we were doing and they got to participate in that. So I can also see now that has rubbed off on them a bit. I have seen them or their comments they've made that I think um, the examples you said are important all throughout that childhood, those childhood years. Which is how you started, right? You said, this is how we learn by watching. So you Mm -hmm. you trained. And I love there's a freedom in what you're saying of like, um, it's not an all or nothing. So come as you can, one one parent, uh, maybe one parent, one kid, one parent, two kids, Mm -hmm. uh, something you don't have to think about it as an all or nothing kind of ideal. There's not a cookie cutter, you said, which I I think, I hope you find that really freeing. That's helpful to think about. Hey, so uh, just for as we close, what would you say to the person who uh, is tempted just to kind of lean back and just show up on a Sunday, sing some songs, hear a sermon, walk out, maybe wave, but not really engage with people. Maybe it's from church hurt. They're like, they're not sure they can anymore or should. Maybe it's just an experience. Maybe maybe there's something else going on. What, what would you say to the person who's tempted to lean back rather than to kind of lean towards relationships? Well, I think the first thing is if somebody's been hurt, I mean, I'm you know, dearly touched by that and want to pray for that person. So the relationships could help with that. Mm. Um, I think also is relationships can be very different. Um, find a pace that feels comfortable, mm. especially if you're, you know, have had a bad experience or if you're concerned or just not comfortable because not everybody is built the same. So just take it at your own pace. Um, I would say also, though, I think there's there's risk, but there's a lot more in the rewards department, I think. Um, you can you can get hurt, but that's any relationship. You've got to be willing to take a little bit of risk to kind of receive the benefit and the joy, because I think we would have missed out on a lot of joy in our life and a lot of opportunities to serve if we had kind of laid back or kind of tried to just blend in. Yeah. Hello, there it is again, that like, take a step. You don't have to do all or nothing. There's not a perfect way. No. I love that. I don't think there's any instruction sheet. There's not 10, like 10 steps yeah. to succeed at this. Right. Yeah.
one of the things I'm learning is those places of pain are often like some of the most fertile relational places and everyone does have a story. So in fact, all of us come with questions and hurts and experiences and we're wondering if there's a place where I can be seen. And uh, so thanks for modeling that. You both have demanding jobs. You've got lots on your plate. Thanks for the ways you've invested here actually for like decades. And again, you helped build something beautiful that helped to welcome new people in. Uh, so I'm, I'm really grateful. So thanks for all you guys have done when it comes to relationships in the church. Hey, I want to introduce to you Carolyn and Rob Sykes. <laughs> They've been members of our church for about... So good. We're going to watch it again. Hey, thanks, Caleb. Hey, I, uh, I hope you were encouraged. So I spent a lot of time on verses 5 to 11 on the taking off. What you saw there was what it looks like to put on. And I hope you were encouraged with the incredibly mundane way they talked about it. To be really honest, because I'm immature, I hope they were going to give us like this secret to 25 years of being healthy in a church and making it amazing, and they were going to unravel some sort of mystery. And what you heard was, oh yeah, we work on names, we take meals, we try to shoot a text every now and then. When we have needs, we let people know so they can come and meet with us, and we try to go slow and just take really mundane steps. It's gardening. It's one at a time. It's uh, some sowing and some removing. It's walking by faith and repenting. And over decades, we can imagine that God would work the soil here in such a way that healthy relationships could actually grow. I want to call you, though, as we get ready to take communion, just to take stock of your relationships. If you have these two options, repentance and things of the flesh and then sowing seeds of the Spirit, um, where are you? What do you most regularly contribute to relationships? Are they marked by these verses 5 to 11? Are there places where you can imagine taking some baby steps towards the things we see in verses 12 to 17? When I feel scared and like there's not enough, that's the places where I get most stingy and clamped down. I wonder if you'll come to communion with this idea of God being an infinite God is where we started. If this relational God has everything you need and he is generous and he won't run out of what you need. And actually communion every week that we kind of take, take together reminds us every week that God has met our needs in Jesus. He's fully satisfied so we can be whole and we can be okay. And then we keep taking communion to keep reminding ourselves of God's mercy and grace towards us that, that actually does nourish us. To the degree you're wrestling with like, man, can I be honest? Or should I ask for forgiveness? Or, or where can I actually express these relationship dynamics? Hear the good news that Jesus already has accomplished everything you needed, so you're whole. And now what he invites you to is simply to live out of that and to stop living out of another false identity if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation this morning for you to trust Christ. God is a relational God. He loves you as a person. He sent His Son into the world to die in your place, to bear the weight of all your relational sins so you could actually be forgiven and set free, not having to pay for all of those, but be pardoned and then welcomed into His family. He's calling you this morning, perhaps, to trust Him for the very first time. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you just to stay in your seat. Don't come take communion. It's a meal for those who are trusting Jesus. If that's not you, just stay in your seat and pray. But there's some examples of what it would sound like to pray. There'll also be folks here in the front pew who would love to pray with you or for you with whatever's going on, Christian, non-Christian, 
things going well, things really difficult, there'll be folks there that you don't have to hold that by yourself. We get to relationally be together and be prayed for. So I would invite you to come and be prayed for during communion as well. Hear the good news that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood to make a way for you to be in a healthy relationship with him and make healthy relationships with one another actually possible. Let me pray for us and then we'll take communion. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Would you come now and fill the room with your spirit's active presence to convict us, to encourage us, to heal us, uh, to help us? Would you grant salvation to those who don't yet know you? And would you nourish your children, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup, there'll be folks at all the aisles and there'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle. When you're ready, come and then we'll sing.